So we're in the middle of the series entitled The Gospel According to John, The Radical Nature of Jesus' Love. We are in chapter 16, and I've um, given this particular message a title, Advocacy is Comfort. Advocacy is Comfort. The disclaimer that I'd like to share is one that I've made before. This uh, is a manuscript or a facsimile of a manuscript, P66, one of uh, around, dated probably around 300s to mid-200s uh, A.D., and uh, the Gospel according to John is an incredibly challenging uh, text for me, and this particular text is challenging for me. Um, and I will tell you, I don't know if I have this right. <laughs> this is the beautiful thing about Spark and the multiple um, diverse set of pastors and teachers that you have here is that you'll get lots of different perspectives. There's huge amounts of symbolism. There's a lot of Hellenistic philosophical perspectives. It's a very apocalyptic kind of book. A lot of metaphor, a lot of spiritual language, a lot of heaven and earth and, and the, these different types of things. And because of the way the Gospel of John is constructed and the way it comes across and the way and the language that it uses, I liken this very much to like a layer cake. We're going to be talking about one specific layer of this, but you might be reading along with these passages and go, but wait a second, isn't the author talking about this layer? And I will say, yes, that is absolutely probably true as well. There's so much stacked on top of these passages that it's really hard to just you know, give a message on one particular thing. So I'm going to focus on one thing, which is advocacy, which is about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's role is and the connection of the Holy Spirit. But there's more there that I'm missing, and I just want to recognize that and let you know, if you see something that I'm not talking about, you are correct. It is also there, because that's how this particular gospel specifically is constructed. It's got beautiful layers to it, and that's why you could mine the depths of these passages and the Christian tradition for the rest of your life and never run out of gems. It's really that beautiful and rich. So let's start in verse 1. I'll pause along the way, and we'll try to focus in on a couple things that I hope are going to be helpful for you. John chapter 16, starting in verse 1. I have spoken the things to you so that you might not be caused to falter. Now, what are these things? The things are all the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks and months, which include things like Jesus being the way, Jesus being the vine, oh, the world's hatred of you, and a whole host of other things. And there's moments in these passages where the author is asking you, don't forget last Sunday. No, don't forget last week. Don't forget the passages that we have talked about all the way up into this particular point. One of the interesting paradoxes, challenges of church is you meet on a Sunday and you get a Sunday message and then you come back next Sunday. And if you're not engrossed in like the totality of this text, you might forget, oh, wait a second, this is actually connected to all these other things. So all of these other things, what are they there for? They are there to make sure that you might not be caused to falter. Those four words are actually one particular word, skandalisthete in Greek, which is the, uh, from the root word skandalon, which sounds like the word scandal. And it is the word for stumble, which gives you a little bit of a depth of meaning as to what the word scandal might actually be. We think of scandal very salaciously. I mean, we're a very voyeuristic kind of culture, so when we think of scandal, it's like we get to peer into the salacious nature of other people, but it's also a thing that happens that causes you to lose your grounding and your footing. I thought that this happened to be true. I thought that this was the reality, and it turns out not to be the case. And you lose your sense of identity. You lose your sense of footing. You don't even know what way is up anymore. 
So part of what's going on here is that all of these teachings are to try to provide for you a way in which you can know, have identity, have certainty in some particular aspects of what it means to follow Jesus, who Jesus is, the life that is promised, etc., so that you will not be scandaled in that particular way. This is the same word that is actually used in other passages that we've talked about. Matthew chapter 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, it's the same word for scandal. If your right eye causes you to lose your footing, to lose your grounding, uh, get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block. You see it a little bit better there in Matthew chapter 16. They will make you exiles from the synagogue, and an hour is coming in which everyone who kills you thinks he is offering a service to God. There are moments in these passages where you realize that the message of Jesus isn't just flowers and nice things and good feelings and going to heaven when you die. There's also these warnings, these concerns, these recognitions of a very real reality that is happening. There are people that want these disciples dead. And then what's also fascinating is that we just had a liturgy here. It is to say that it is the liturgy, it's the way in which you practice your service to God very much like we just did here, whether that's through singing, through communion, through prayer. These people have become so deluded that killing another person, specifically a disciple of Jesus, is to them very much like an act of worship. So this is the kind of thing that all of us should be wary of. By the way, I'm sure if you thought about this enough, you could probably think of religious institutions or people or practices or messages or theologies that teach this very thing. And it's your duty and worship to God to hate on those people, to kill them, to put them down, to make life miserable for them. So this is not a new thing. This goes all the way back. And then Jesus says this, and they will do this because they have not known the Father or me. And this, this talking about the Father, and then eventually we're going to get to the Spirit by this person named Jesus who is called the Son, is going to invoke, for those of you who are familiar with this tradition, invoke the idea of the Trinity, or the idea that there are three what's, three who's, three things, three aspects. What, how do you think about this? We're not going to solve that problem, obviously, but I know that some of us have wrestled does the Trinity even matter anymore? Does that theology matter? And what Jesus is doing here, I think he's going to propose that it does matter, but not necessarily in the way that we think about it in you have to believe in a particular construct of the Trinity. Because what's happening here is far more functional than it is theological. Catch that. What's happening in these passages is far more what the Father cares about what the Spirit does and how the Spirit participates and what the Son values. It's far more about that than it is, than it is about your affirmation that the Father is the Son, the Son is the Spirit, and the Spirit is the Father, all of the, all the kind of stuff that many of us have grown up in. We need to pull back from that and say, wait a second, this is much more about functionality because right after Jesus says people are going to kill us, He's connecting, well, that's because they haven't known me or the Father. So it's much more connected to that. But I have said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. But now I am going away to the one who has sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Like, Jesus is, you know, a little hurt. Like, you're not even going to ask me where I'm going here? But because I have spoken to you, grief has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. 
It is for your own good that I should go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate surely is not coming to you. But if I shall go, but if I go, I shall send him to you. Here's that phrase, the advocate. In Greek, it's the word parakletos, which is transliterated into our English paraclete, which makes you think of, yes, exactly, soccer. That's what I think of, paraclete. Oh, jeez, don't ever do that again. Paraclete. The word paraclete or parakletos has this idea of somebody who is an advocate, but in some of your translations, the Bible will actually say comforter, mediator. And para, kletos, para, next to, standing up to, standing up with. The advocate, which will be essentially the spirit of God, is somebody who is going to come alongside and comfort and console you, stand by with you, but does so because this spirit is advocating for you for something. In other words, comfort and consolation, to know that I have some sense of intimacy with God is here also connected with a legal term to mean make an argument on your case, to argue for you. So instead of the paracletes that I showed up there, this is more the image that I think of when I think of the paraclete. This is a group of people from an organization called LACI, Legal Advocates for Children and Youth. And without getting into all of the issues, um, all of the history that uh, I have with them, I, I just tell you, these are amazing people. These are people that advocate for children and youth, people who fundamentally in our particular culture do not have a voice. So when I think about the advocate that is going to come that Jesus sends, I'm thinking about somebody who is going to, on my behalf, speak for me. When other people are attempting to kill me and put me down, slaughter me, this kind of idea. It is not, as I mentioned in the email, mere sentimentality. Oh, it's nice that, you know, Spirit's going to come and comfort you, like a nice teddy bear or a pillow. The ideas of comfort and consolation are deeply connected with advocacy. And you, I, I'm not giving you all the background... If you do the searching of how this particular word is used in the other Greek literature at that time, this is how that term is being used. And fascinatingly enough, this word in the New Testament only shows up in the writings of John. This is a big theme for John. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit is going to be your advocate and is going to speak on your behalf, argue for your case. And when the world comes against you, or when you, have, or you, when you are being tempted to lose your footing, when you don't know what is up or what is down anymore, there is somebody who is going to come and make things right. When you feel as if you are being victimized by injustice, there is somebody who is going to come to advocate on your behalf and make things life right. And that is what is comforting. That is what is consoling. And so, when John writes about this, this is what he's talking about. The dove, by the way, is the preeminent image of what the Holy Spirit is. And again, are there other layers about what the Holy Spirit is? Yes. This is just one layer of that layer cake. But this passage and this 
term and these references in the Gospel of John is an argument for somebody in a legal system who is going to stand on your behalf. Especially when the people that are coming down upon you think that they are doing God's service and God's will. Do you see see the tension and feel this here? And we won't get into it deeply, but the way in which John writes this is that the Spirit is going to come from the Father sent by the Son, the idea that all of these elements are intertwined. The reason why I'm talking about this so extensively is that there's been a couple sparkers in recent times that have had these conversations about what really is the Father's role in the midst of this whole Trinitarian theology, the Son and the Spirit. I'm not quite sure how they all work together. And what seems to be happening here in the Gospel according to John is that they're actually all working in concert, different kinds of expressions of this one God who cares deeply about his people. And when he comes, he will prove the cosmos wrong concerning sin, concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. Concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. These are really, prove the cosmos wrong. That's the legal language. I'm going to stand in the court and I'm going to say the world has this wrong. The world doesn't get this right on all of these things. And man, we, we need to spend more time on each of those terms. And here's what, Jesus, here's what the writer continues to say. Concerning sin, because they do not have faith in me. Concerning righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the archon, the ruler, that's a Greek word for ruler, of this cosmos has been judged. And I really need to highlight the entire passage here, because this entire segment is the argument. They just don't understand what sin, they don't understand what judgment, they don't understand what righteousness is. Jesus goes on to say that I have many things to tell you right now, but you can't bear them. It's just enough right now that you have the advocate. But when that one comes, the spirit of truth, he will guide you on the way to all truth. For he will speak for himself, but will speak what he hears, and he will announce to you things to come. Okay, let me see if I can sum this up, because this is a lot, so many layers. Jesus is speaking to his disciples about the oppression and the deleterious acts of religious people who think they're doing God's will and they're going to come and attack you and kill you. Jesus has to go away because that's part of the call that gets into the larger theme of John. So Jesus is going away, but Jesus is not going to leave us alone. There's an advocate coming, and an advocate is not just a comforter. It is somebody who's going to argue on your behalf, like a lawyer in a law court standing up for the innocent, like those lawyers who are standing up for the children and the youth. And that advocate is going to argue based upon the truth. This is the full theme of what's happening here. Multiple layers. Now, why would that be important? The city of Jerusalem is considered the belly button of the world. This is what's known as the Clover Map. If you take a look closely, you see uh, Europe, Asia, and Africa all centered around the belly button of Jerusalem. This is obviously not true. This is a perspective. It's a view that people have had. It describes an idea that the entire world actually has to pass through Israel in the ancient world. Many of you have studied and know about the Fertile Crescent, which is also the central portion of the Middle East where Israel also is. And so Jesus has his teachings. Israel has its founding and development in this central area. And the reason why that, this is a picture I took in, the, in central Jerusalem. You can see that map there and the entire world surrounding it. 
So if you have all of these countries and nations, they have to go through Israel. But if you are a small, little, nobody of a country, barely mentionable by name, what happens to you when all of these large countries, powerful countries are coming through and wanting to conquer? What happens to you? Quick survey. This is very quick, but this is part of Israel's history. In 722, a king by the name of Sennacherib from the Assyrians comes through and decimates the northern kingdom. Israel is just taken out. Tens, hundreds of thousands of people are killed. Many more are sent away. If that's bad enough, Sennacherib doesn't get to Jerusalem, but a couple hundred years later, this guy does. Nebuchadnezzar 586-587 from Babylon does, and he takes Jerusalem. Now the entire country is taken, and this is what's known as the exile. It would be like you know, people coming into, your, into California and slaughtering a bunch of us and taking us away to another particular location. If that's not enough, Alexander the Great comes through in 333, representing the Macedonians, and then he takes over. And after Alexander dies, he leaves his kingdom to a whole bunch of other rulers. This guy in particular, Antiochus Epiphanes IV from the Seleucids, is brutal to the Jews. Absolutely brutal. No Sabbath, no Torah, no circumcision, no kosher eating. And if you do any of those, you are going to be dead. Very much like what Jesus says, people are going to kill you as if that was their service to God. This is a theme that has happened throughout Israel's history. And each one of these kings and kingdoms have been absolutely devastating and slaughtering to the people. One of the reasons why we consider our biblical history not to be written by the victors, but be, to be written by those who have been oppressed. It gets worse. I, I'm just giving you a very brief sketch here. Julius Caesar, 44, Caesar Octavian, who's also Augustus, and then, of course, Herod the Great is installed. And each one of these particular rulers establishes into the country and onto the people laws, stipulations, guidelines, and oppression, and slaughtering. And just if you read through the history, it's kind of amazing how the Israelites, the ancient Israelites, and the Jewish people even survived. And this just goes on and on and on and on. If that's not bad enough, these are all foreign rulers. You know, you can make a case for Herod the Great. But you have all these foreign rulers that are coming through and slaughtering and oppressing. The, the, Jewish, the old, Jewish people themselves raise up a council from within their own tribe and say, we need you to govern us. And so they establish a Sanhedrin. But in that particular day, there's not even an established justice of how justice is supposed to be even with the Sanhedrin. There's argumentation, there's all sorts of arguments about who's supposed to be right and who's supposed to be wrong, arguments about the resurrection, and because of the religious oppression that's happening, there are many people, many people, who are suffering at the hands of the religious elite and the religious rulers. We see this in the archaeology, we see this in the text, we see this in our own Bible. Now, this is to argue the fact that throughout Israel's history, the tradition of which we come from, oppression, condemnation, slaughter, exile, is core and central to how we think and understand ourselves. And one of the big questions that emerges through this entire process is anybody going to judge these people? We are victims here. 
of these powers that be, is anybody going to judge? Is there going to be any accountability? Somebody please take Julius Caesar, Antiochus Epiphanes, Herod the Great, any of these people, and put them on a stand and condemn them for the injustices that they are giving and putting out to us. Is anybody going to do that? Now, this is really important because judgment, especially in a lot of Christian circles, is seen as a very negative term. Judging, don't judge me, bruh, as I mentioned the other day, don't judge me because judgment is about condemnation. And I look at you and I don't like the clothes you wear. I don't like how you talk about your theology or I don't like how you take communion or you know, these kinds of things. And I look down on you. Somehow you're not as much of a good Christian that you're supposed to be. That is not the concept of judgment as we talked about earlier and even today. Judgment is a gift because when you have people who are ruling you and oppressing you and slaughtering you, you want somebody to come in and advocate on your behalf and to say, that is wrong, that shouldn't happen, and there should be accountability and punishment there. Does that sound like exactly what Jesus is talking about here? Which is to say, I am sending you that exact person who will advocate on your behalf. Do you feel, sense, or experience that there is somebody in power right now who is not acting justly. Somebody who is in a position of authority that is taking advantage of everybody under that person. Is there somebody that is acting in such a way with pride and greed and arrogance and narcissism that is wreaking havoc upon the people? Is there anybody that will stand up for those people and advocate on their behalf? And Jesus says, yes. That's what I'm doing. That's, what I, that's why I am here. That's why I'm sending the Spirit. And that same Spirit comes from the Father. The Father is advocating, and this is the work that is being done. So when Jesus talks about the advocate to his disciples, heading into a world of unknown futures, know this, it feels like Jesus is saying, the Spirit is with you, and not just with you to comfort you and to console you, but to advocate on your behalf when all hell breaks loose, which it will, because I didn't even get to post-Jesus, you know, with the Romans and everything that comes later. Over the past couple weeks, I've been kind of glued to two particular news stories that have been really intriguing because I was thinking about this particular passage, advocacy, legal term, law court language, and there are two really significant legal cases in our current news cycle that I think are quite apropos. First one is the case against Alec Jones um, and the Sandy Hook parents, for those of us who remember the um, incredible tragedy of children and teachers dying in Sandy Hook. And what Alex Jones did with his particular platform and with his particular power and his ideology is to spread the most heinous falsehoods about this act. And not only did these families have to go through the tragedy of that particular shooting, then they had to relive that tragedy on top of additional injustice by this gentleman. And the question through this, I mean, it's been 10 years. Is anybody going to advocate on their behalf? Will anybody stand up and say, this is wrong? Will anybody stand up and 
advocate. And so I don't know these lawyers. I don't know all the behind the scenes. But this to me feels like one of those moments where, yes, there's going to be bad actors. There's going to be injustice. There's going to be all sorts of horrible things. That happen, but there are people that are advocating for the truth of the matter. And that advocacy for the truth is what is comforting and consoling. Again, not just mere sentimentality. I'm going to argue for the truth of the matter. The second news was this story about um, Adnan Syed, who was wrongfully imprisoned several years ago because he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of his girlfriend. Recent DNA evidence, and you can read the entire story, and even the prosecution has said, we don't have a case. We manipulated or we set aside particular elements because we didn't, it wasn't supportive for our case. And so here's the flip side. An innocent person who is in jail, who is living out a sentence, and the question is the same. Is anybody going to advocate for this person? And for those of you who listen to the podcast Serial, I remember listening to that, thinking, this is an advocacy. Somebody is telling the story, getting it out, and while there's a lot of speculation we will never really, really know, there is suggestion that the actual journalism that was happening in the podcast was a part of the advocacy that led to the exoneration. And when the advocate comes, he will prove the world, the cosmos, wrong. Concerning sin, we're not sinful. I, look, I'm in power. I can do whatever I want. Concerning righteousness, you know what's righteous? Deny your religion and worship me as your king. Concerning judgment. What judgment? Whatever I say goes. I'm the king. So when the advocate comes, the world will finally be proven wrong. And I hope that this idea becomes more and more central to how we understand and see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because the high theology that we talk about oftentimes with that is about, I don't know, same substance, what kind of substance, how do they relate? We very rarely talk about the function, the values, the goals, the ethics of this God expressed in these ways, which is to bring justice, to bring peace, to make that transformation in this world. Because advocacy, my friends, on behalf of the truth, that is what justice, that is what comfort is, to advocate. As we head for communion, I pray that we remember that the Spirit is even present here. And as we take communion, which is the representation of Christ's body and blood, as a sacrament and as a symbol of the very presence of God, may you also sense and feel for yourself, for your family, for whatever world we might be living in, that in this symbol, there is an advocacy on your behalf for the justice of this world, to put this entire world right. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, 
blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Communion is a time where the family comes together to share in this meal, this sacrament. And for those of you who are here, no matter who you are, where you come from, what kind of oppression, injustice, what kind of background, church experience, we just honestly don't care. You are a beautiful human being made in the image and likeness of God. And you are all welcome at this table. As we sing, please come.